Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Louis Grenier, podcast host of Everyone Hates Marketers and the creator of the eight-week course called Stand the Fuck Out. In this episode, we talked about how the course can help you and your business stand the fuck out and why you need to. We also chatted about the motivations that led him to create it in the beginning. We then discussed why Louis hates the idea of category creation and what he believes you should aim for instead. We then dove into the different steps you need to take to achieve radical differentiation. And finally, we discussed why big brands and market leaders can afford not to be different. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode. And if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Louis, welcome to the show. For the listeners, uh, we have Louis Grenier on the show today, or as he likes to call himself, Louis the Grenade Grenier. He's the host of Everyone Hates Marketers, a popular contrarian marketing podcast that reached 1 million plus downloads with no ads in less than four years, and the course creator of Stand the Fuck Out. An eight-week, high-intensity-only works designed for risk-takers who want to radically stand out in a sea of competitors and attract customers they love and respect. Prior to doubling down on EHM and his course, Louis was a co-worker of mine at Hotjar, where he focused on marketing content, marketing strategy, positioning, and differentiation. Before that, he was also a marketing consultant, helping companies like Forrest and Dropbox. So my first question for you, Louis, is what is Stand the Fuck Out and what are you trying to achieve with it? Thanks for this wonderful intro, man. It's great to chat to you again. I, I, for the record, I don't call myself the grenade. You came up with it, which is actually uh, pretty fucking good. Come on, come uh, on. It was, was that a meetup we met for the first time? It was like, hi, my name's Louis, Louis the Grenade. And I was like, why grenade? He's like, because I drop bombs wherever I go. I was like, nah, come on. Jesus. I and mean, people will actually believe you because you're <laughs> such a good liar. But yeah, thanks for asking. Stand the fuck out. That came from years and years of trying to find myself and exactly what I wanted to do in this life, because we both know it's, it's a short life and I wanted to do something meaningful that was giving me energy that I was good at, that I could pay, be paid well from, and that was in demand. And radical differentiation is something that came to me after years of years of this kind of internal work with myself and also the people I seek to serve, like the audience that I started to build through Everyone Hates Marketers, the work I started to do through Hodger. And it's the kind of, that's the destination of all of that, but it's, it would be way too easy for me to do this kind of survivorship bias thing to say, it just came up to me like that and it's working and yeah, it just took years and years and we can deep dive into that if you want. 
Yeah, absolutely. You started the course now. Is this the second batch that you're going through or you had a thing? Give us a little update on yeah. what's happened so far. So I'm running it twice a year. It's limited to 20 people and it's not just a bullshit scarcity uh, tactic. It's genuinely because I get to know everyone in the cohort. I get to challenge them and me. We work together. We're quite the same in that sense. We have weekly group calls and I would single out everyone, making sure they do their work, making sure they ship, making sure they get feedback, making sure they challenge their self-limiting beliefs. Yeah. And I can't really do that after 20. I realized that 20 is probably the max. And yeah, we are running the second cohort now and, and I'm running it twice a year only because as well, it, it takes a lot of, out of me and yeah. I want to do the best job possible. So I want to keep this balance between giving value as many, to as many people as possible, but without losing my energy. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. I, I like as well the focus that you've had though through everything that you've done and that we've worked on as well previously, like starting with the podcast when I first got to know you, like I met you on the first day, I heard that you're a podcast host, love the name as well. Everyone hates marketers. It, it almost there at that point as well is already like a little bit contrarian and sorts like trying to fight back against shady marketing tactics and really focus on delivering value. I think that sort of comes back to it and it's what you're talking about now. After 20, difficult for me to add value as an individual, but really like below that. Let's dive into it a little bit more then. What's somebody going to learn on this course? Like, why would you want to stand the fuck out as a business? What do you hope to achieve after these eight weeks or with the lessons that you get from going through it? So it's, it's easy to describe the problem. Everyone knows that intuitively. Clutter is everywhere, right? Everyone with a brain and a computer and an internet connection can create something tomorrow and, or today. They can claim to be marketing consultants. They can claim to be startup owner and whatever. Like anyone can start a blog, a newsletter, a podcast, a business today. So by default, then it's getting more and more difficult to stand out because the barrier to entry is getting so much lower. So whatever you're trying to do, that should be your top priority. That should be your top priority to be seen and noticed. Because if you can't be seen and noticed, you can sell. If you can sell, you can make money. It just goes back to. So intuitively, I don't need to spend a lot of time on the problem because people get it. I know if you're listening to this right now, you just get the problem. So what I teach though is the, the problem with people telling you, oh, you just need to be different. You need to be authentic. You need to sell, you need to tell stories. I hate this one. You need to do your storytelling. Is that they never tell you how. So you would read books on positioning and differentiation. I've read them all and I keep reading more that I discover. And they all get your kind of creative circuits firing. They all get you excited. They share examples of massive brands like Disney and Harley Davidson and, and all of those and telling you this is how they do it. But when you go to the nitty gritty, and that's what I tried to do for years, you never get a blueprint. You never get some sort of a method that is rooted in psychology and first principles that is very unlikely to change because it's rooted in the way people think that actually make you create something that is radically different by design. And that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I did when I took a month off like months ago to try to compile all the stuff I had in my head, all the interviews from the podcast that touch on the topic, all the books I had read, my experiences and try to condense it to something I felt. I can actually teach people to do that from start to finish. And at the end, they'll have clarity on a very solid positioning that is radically different from the rest. And at the end, they'll have a sentence that only says, we are the only whatever that does whatever for those people. And once you have this sequence, this three attribute kind of sentence, you have achieved kind of radical differentiation. 
but obviously the work is not over. You need to spread the word and for years after that, and that's kind of outside of the remit of the of the program. But the core foundation is is that, and so that's what I'm trying to solve. Yeah, it's awesome. I think having worked with you as well personally, I think one of your big skills really has been always that is being able to take a huge amount of data and condense it into a really small, condensed, meaningful, and you used to bring these one pages, uh, you used to love your little one pages, but they were always super impactful and really, really easy to digest. And then at the end of the day, like easy to work off and get the team to rally behind. So um, definitely intrigued and interested now to what you put together over uh, that time uh, that you're away. Thanks, man. And, and but just on that, and you've, you've picked up on exactly the, the core concept here, which is, and you picked it up earlier, you mentioned it earlier as well, which is the idea of congruence, that everything makes sense. Everything is, you could put it on a thread and it just connects and there's no fluff. There is no bullshit on top. There is no dis disconnection between stuff. It's not as if you're a big company and you claim to be, let's say for women's rights and uh, feminism, and then you don't allow your pregnant uh, employees to have time off. It's like congruence. If you want to be radically different, that's the core to learn is that you must achieve congruence. And it means removing a lot more than you think from the entire experience. And I'm not talking about feature here. I'm not talking about differentiation through features. I'm talking about through the entire thing that people see. Yeah. And exactly one pages and all of that is the same concept is congruence, simplicity. Nice. So I, I want to ask you a couple of questions on this then as well, specifically like getting to that final sentence. Uh, you said something like we are the only that, that does X for X, because I think this is also plays into a little bit about the idea of category creation. And it's actually some, a book that I've read recently, Play Bigger and a few others. And I see you cringing as well. Why are you cringing? Let's just start with that. I, because I fucking hate it for uh, multiple reasons. So I hate this word of category creation because there's, there's a, a few reasons why it's wrong. First, you need to have years and years of experience and huge deep pockets and a lot of patience to pull off a category, a real category creation move, which means creating an actual brand new category that people don't know. It takes a lot of time. According to Play Bigger, it's, it takes from six to 10 years for a category creation to actually be full. Yeah. And so David Cancel from Drift can pull that off because he has years and years of startups and years and, and so many connections in, in Silicon Valley that he can pull that off. For 99.999% of companies out there that are not VC-backed uh, tech startup with huge innovation, it's very unlikely to be for you. If you're listening to this and you're not in that space or you're a smaller bootstrap company and whatever, it's unlikely to be for you. The second big reason why it's a big issue that I have is that most category creation case studies are actually not category creation case studies. They are subcategory. For example, in, in Blue Ocean Strategy, they mentioned this new fry maker from a French company called Seb. And they said they created a new category by doing an air fry maker, which uses around 80% less oil, apparently. And they are saying it that it's, they sell to the new Blue Ocean and there is no competition. Bullshit. It's absolutely bullshit. They are still part of the same category, which is a, a fry maker. And yes, they've innovated. They removed a few things. Great. But it's not a category creation move. People still understand that it's a fry maker. And so what I'm teaching through radical differentiation is try to avoid that very kind of very difficult move to pull and say, hold on, you can play inside a category and do a lot of damage and challenge the category leader and have fun with it 
without trying to invent something that you're going to have to educate millions of people about. And that's the toughest thing to do. And this is why I'm getting fired up. One of the toughest things to do in marketing is to make people change their mind and update their mind. It just takes years. So yeah. you must use something and lean against something that already exists or else you're going to have a tough time. For sure. I think we're 100% like creatures of habit. And I think even now, like in times of COVID, I think we're overthinking the changes that people are going to have post, if we ever get back to like uh, post COVID. I, I saw it here, like I stay, I live in Cyprus, a small little island. We had a big spike last year when it, just like the rest of the world. And then it, the cases went to zero for most of the summer for five, six months. People just went back to life as normal. It was almost like COVID had never come in and gone or whatever. It was just life as usual. And I think like we are these creatures of habit that just as soon as things go back to normal. So it's very, very difficult to change those habits and those behaviors. And I 100% agree with you as well on the fact that you need a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of education to, to build a category. I would push back though and say, I think like when you do nail it, you nail it and then you, oh, yeah. you become that position. But absolutely. what would but be the difference the... though in what you're saying, like at an early stage, okay, really just figuring out this category that, you, that you're sitting in and how you can differentiate within it that almost becomes the foundations for a future play. And I think that's also maybe should be that maybe the thoughts and because this is something I'm thinking about now for my startup is like, yes, we're never going to create a category from day one. We're not going to, we're not that stupid or naive that we're going to be able to do it, but it's more like what can we do internally to set the foundations, to set the path on the direction that we see the world going. And I think I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on that. One is what is the difference between these two paths? Or if they're pretty similar in your mind, like how do you see this evolving and how do you see it becoming uh, something big? Or do you say it doesn't need to be just because the category is big enough. If you make enough noise and make enough mess, like you can build a really good business. So the, the main difference between playing inside an existing category and creating a new category couldn't be uh, bigger. It, it, the, you, by playing inside a category and picking one, you are leaning against stuff that people expect and know already. So you're basically leaning on the work of others, so you don't have to do it. For any go-to-market strategy and any company that want to cross their chasm, the strategy is always the same. You must obsess over a specific group of people who have similar characteristics so that word of mouth can be part of it. You must build and create an experience that is better than alternatives out there. So that's so they actually rave about you. And you must do that in a congruent way, meaning removing as much as possible and making it super lean and obsessing over one specific thing. And then you must spread the word over and over again using a fame first kind of mindset, which is about becoming famous inside that group of people. It doesn't mean in a vain way. It means becoming famous, meaning people start to see you. They start processing you. They start remembering you. They start building memory structures around you. And therefore, they will pick you the next time they think of that category. And once you do that, it's the balling pin strategy from the book Crossing the Chasm. You absolutely can grow bigger in a bigger market, in a bigger category, and maybe play and fight against a category leader. Or once you've made enough money, maybe, maybe a category, a new category, a, an actual genuinely new category can be created. But it's, there is so much to play with inside categories that already exist that it shouldn't be discounted and you can create subcategories. You can, you can obsess over a group of people that have been underserved. You can remove a lot of stuff. There's so much you can do that inside. Avenues. So that's the biggest thing. Yeah. And I think as well, especially now uh, with what's happened and how the world's accelerated. And if we're talking about the context of like subscription businesses, software, uh, like 
categories have just expanded overnight, like the market share and the size and the audience so with so many more people moving online. So the opportunities there, like it's just going to be expanding imminently for the next few years with what's happened recently. Let's talk a little bit about the details then. So I get started now, decide I want to stand the fuck out. I want to separate myself. What's the action plan? Yeah. What's the first step? So there's basically four parts. Uh, the first part is the mindset, something that no one really talks about in those books. Uh, an expert don't really touch it. That's the biggest hurdle. You must challenge your self-emitting belief. The biggest one is to think that that is this is a risky move to stick your neck out. In France in particular, where I'm from, it's not something that people like. You're not supposed to stick your neck out and, and you need to go back to the, to the average and, and, and people who make a lot of money are, are thrown upon and people are being jealous of them. Anyway, you must take some risk, but actually taking risk is the safest, safest option. If you don't, nothing's going to happen for you. You're going to you need to fear obscurity over anything else. And and by, by challenging self-meeting belief, it's really about trying to write down the, the things that you're afraid of and really finding counter arguments to each. Because the people who actually are different, if you think about it, the people that the artists that you love, like Daft Punk, I'm doing a teardown on, on their differentiation soon. And Daft Punk is, they just retired. And brilliant example of differentiated artists. They all talk about that. They, the both of them say about, we have been fearless from day one. And they would have done, there's so many things they would have done differently. They would have never tried so many different things if they were afraid. And you need this confidence to just push through and fucking go for it, all in. If you go 50% in, if you dilute things a bit, if you make the curry less spicy and round up the edges and, and change the name everyone hates marketers to everyone loves marketing, or then it's it's just not going to stick. So you're going to have to go just all in. Fluff. And obscurity yeah. is your enemy. So I could go on. There's a lot of more self-emitting belief, like imposter syndrome, thinking you're a fraud and people will mock you, people will throw rocks at you. But overall, my biggest advice on this journey is to talk to a coach, talk to a therapist, talk to friends, do some work on yourself, because this is what is required. The mindset is the biggest thing. So having said that, second step is the minimum viable market, your market, the people you seek to, to serve. And there's a few other people talking about the exact same step, obviously, because I'm not claiming to have invented anything. I'm just connecting the dots from experts who are much more uh, smart than me. The, the part here is really about instead of starting with the product that you already have or the idea that you already have, it's to forget it for a second, I'm longer than a second, and obsess over that market first. So the, the best example I can give is instead of thinking of a, a market in terms of demographics or firmographics like B2B stars, SaaS companies, is to think about the actual core psychographic, the core thing that they want to achieve, the core thing that you can help them do. The, making a customer list, if you have already customers, or if you don't, listing down hypotheses of the people that you have access to, very important. Who do you have access to? Because when it's time to market them, you're going to struggle if you don't have access to any. Joy, do you actually enjoy working with those people? Are those people you want to work with? I prefer to work with consultants, small business owners, founders, mavericks, like people who love taking risk and artists over CEOs of Fortune 500. That's super important. Uh, obviously, profitability. Are they, are they making a lot of money for you? Are they not? But it's not only just money. It's, are they sucking the life out of you? Are they making it very difficult for you, like time-wise and whatnot? And those three criterias on their own, plus the pain, are they in pain? Is there something big that you can solve for them? Makes kind of the 
the kernel of the type of people you need to obsess about to understand exactly who they are. And a lot of advice are there about the money. So they will tell you, make a list of your top customers, identify the top 20%, and then uh, those, those uh, who makes the most, and then those are the ones you should obsess over. And I don't think that's the right way, surely because radical differentiation as a, as a journey requires you to have fun as well. And if you just obsess over customers who can make a lot of money for you, I think you, you might miss out on the bigger picture. And sure, you might have to price your stuff 10x less, but it's, it's like this congruence again. If, if you really serve people you hate and you don't really don't get a lot of energy out of, you're going to struggle in the long term. To do this, you've talked about that on the podcast a lot, time, a, long, a lot of time. Once you have a list to do this, you just interview people. And when I say interview people, you start conversation and you ask them, to understand the journey from start to finish. When was the first time you ever heard about us and all of that? Uh, I'm not going to go through that in detail because you've covered that before. And yeah. it's the common questions that people ask. The, the core advice I have here, though, is to avoid asking questions and talking to people who never crossed that bridge, meaning who never bought your solution or never bought a solution similar than yours. You're going to talk to tire kickers then and you're going to get false data. People are very good at talking about their past and what they've done impossible to talk uh, to people about the future. They can't come up with solutions for you. So that's the biggest mistake to avoid. I would say one question though, that I've never heard really being mentioned anywhere in those type of interviews that I use a lot now, which is super fun to ask is what are the things you hate about our category or industry? What are the cliches that you can't stick anymore? Now it's a hit and miss question. Sometimes people don't have any idea, but sometimes you get so much insight, so many insights you are like, we can play with that so much. We can remove all the stuff they mentioned or we can make fun of it or whatever. And so that question usually unlocks a lot of fun stuff. Nice. So Never heard that once you have that, you make sense of the interviews and you stop talking to people once you know what they're going to say next. That's the rule, right? Like once you, once you talk to enough people and they repeat the same thing, the same words, and you can almost finish the sentence, you have a congruent group. And this is when you must write down the definition of, the, of that market. And it's difficult. It's difficult advice to give, man, because it takes a bit of taste and experience to get to the point of knowing, okay, this is a congruent market that I can obsess about that seems small enough for me to own, but big enough for me to make money. It takes a bit of, of time. So give me, let me give you a quick example. I work with a a client that sells shampoos in the US. And the original idea was that their minimum viable market were Latinas in general. Okay, underserved market, niche enough, niche, millions of people fit this description. So very demographic base, doesn't tell you much about why they buy and all of that. So we went on to do exactly what I told you. And what we discovered was that the minimum viable market for them, the kernel of the group they must obsess about before moving on to bigger things were Latinas with long hair, frizzy hair in particular, who like to buy online, so youngish, spending a lot of time on Instagram as well, apparently, who lived in two states in the US, Florida and California, because this is those two states had very warm and humid weather all year long, which made the pain of having long frizzy hair that they couldn't control even bigger, right? Yeah. And once you have that market, I can tell you, it gets so much easier to build an experience that is radically different just for them. It gets much easier. Again, 
my, my biggest advice is to think of psychographics and why they buy and attributes that are related to that first, and then apply a layer of demographic and firmographic saying, okay, those people with long hair and frizzy hair, they tend to be women, they tend to be between 20 and 30, but that's not the biggest thing that you need to care about. And, and, then, and then it takes a bit of experience. Like that's the, I yeah. know I don't like to give that, but that's, that's the way it works. It takes a bit of time. I think it takes a bit of time and takes a bit of what you mentioned the being encouraged, because I think this is one of the biggest areas where companies fail is they never pick an audience. They never, because it's also, what about alienating others? What about missing out potential market? Yes. And I think it's probably the biggest mistake you can make is trying to be everything uh, for everyone and when you become nothing for no one. And in your case, like what you highlighted now, the example is like, it sounds super specific, but it also sounds super powerful at the same time. Then uh, all your marketing uh, spend is going to go into which states, like exactly what the types of campaigns you're going to be running off of the back of that, how to speak to an actual individual living in a state with a specific problem uh, and potentially even a specific time of the year, because that's also influenced then as well by the weather and things like that. So like you, you can get so much more specific in terms of the strategies that you go to acquire and approach these. And I think in the context of the show as well, this is like one of, the biggest uh, areas as well where we see like churn happening a lot is where you're bringing in the wrong customers through the door. And the biggest area of that is by just doing like a spray and pray strategy where you try to acquire as many customers as possible. doesn't matter who they are, probably not great fits uh, for your product and coming in and then just churning later. But starting off by knowing exactly who you're going after, exactly why you're going after, whatever their biggest pain problem is. You almost set yourself up for success. It's like prevention is better than churn. And it starts with just knowing uh, the customer, knowing the problem, and then everything just becomes so much easier. What you build for them, how you go about figuring out what goes onto the roadmap, what's most important. Uh, so, yeah. yes. And so to come back to this, one self-emitting belief I, I didn't mention at the start, but that's one of the biggest. If we focus on one tiny market or that seemingly tiny or one message or one product, or one part of the experience, we're going to miss out on other opportunities. So that's the typical maximizer mindset, which is really about, oh, but what if the, what if the, what if, what if we get more, but you need to ask yourself the other question, which is by focusing on one market or one message or whatever, by not focusing on one market or one message, or whatever, what are you missing out on? By not focusing on the market, you're missing out on congruence. You're missing out on less churn because you're going to serve the right people throughout the experience from start to finish. You're going to miss out on expertise or perceived expertise from the other side. If I'm telling you that we are the only shampoo in the world that actually is specifically made and works the best for women with long hair, uh, frizzy hair, whatever, it's just so much easier for, 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 for them then to pay even a premium for that because they know it's just for them. And so you need to flip the question. What are you missing out on by not going niche? And it's not just niche, it's by just not going specific. As soon as you open up the door, you open up the door to mediocrity. You make the curry less spicy, average things for average people. So, you, and let me be clear, you can't be radically different without a very specific market that you obsess about. If you try to be Disney and Google and whatever, you're fucked. Yeah. Again, it is one of those very, very tough things. I think especially in the beginning as well, when you maybe don't have the time, don't have the resources to really spend the time. So I think a lot of times when you get started, this is a step that gets skipped is like really doubling down on understanding the problem, really like just 
going out and speaking to customers over and over and over again before you start building anything. I think that's one thing I've definitely been guilty of in the past. This time around, though, because the total opposite. I was like, let me first really try and understand. And I, even just yesterday, we were chatting with the team. It was like, I think we've started, customers started using the product now, but we haven't taken a step back again to reevaluate like, what we're building. We went down a train of thought, said, okay, this is where we believe we need to go. Obviously, from our own experience, being our own customers, I think it's a good place and position to be in. But it's super important to keep going back and keep challenging these beliefs and really trying to understand. And we did it at Hotshot like a few times, I think, in terms of trying to identify the ideal customer profile. If I'm honest, I don't think we ever did uh, did a great job and we ever really stood out. I think we've had this discussion as well before where, but I think your counter argument, if I remember correctly at the time, was like Hotjar being the market leader that it is it always had that market leader dynamics that we're going to pull it forward no matter what without needing to really push the boundaries of standing out and focusing on a specific niche. Yeah. That's a very important point. So the reason why big brands and big companies that are market leaders can afford not to be different anymore and be distinctive, meaning just being seen, that's the main thing, is because they are market leader. So that's from the great book from Baron Sharp, How Brands Grow, which is really about that. The more market share you have, the more people will talk about you and the more likely people will be loyal to you. The less market share you have, the less, the more people will actually uh, churn and go to a competitor. And so Hodja had this market dynamic being first. They were the first to combine all those features together. And actually, if you think about it from a differentiation perspective, they were the, the first and only one to do that. And then thanks to that, they went for a minimum viable market. Their minimum viable market were agencies, and like consultant and stuff for those clients, but not any agencies, the agencies that were kind of the, the forefront, those early adopters in the adoption curve. And yes. from that, it started to snowball. And then they started to cross the chasm and they started to serve everyone in their category. And that's the journey. Every brand has the same journey. And if you think you are the only one who's not going to apply it this way, you're, you're, you're badly mistaken. Just another quick example outside of tech, Red Bull. Like that's a big brand everyone mentions. How did they start? They started in Australia. The guy, their minimum viable market were male students who partied like crazy. That was their first market in Australia. And they went in, in nightclubs and they uh, paid students to be the ambassadors and they gave free samples away. And that's how they started. They didn't start like the media powerhouse that they are. They yeah. started like everyone else is by obsessing over a small group of people. Yeah, Red Bull is, I think, a case study in, in its own. And I, there was a line, I think, from the CMO at the time I head of marketing was like, he said that we're a media house that just happens to sell an energy drink. So they almost shifted their entire focus as a business uh, to content and to production. And I uh, think that the like energy drink almost became an afterthought uh, eventually. But uh, like you said, they started from somewhere and... Uh, it was really specific and focused, unbelievable brand, what they've been able to do that. Cool. So I see we're running up on time as well, though. I want to save some a question that I ask every guest that joins the show. Um, looking forward to hearing your answer too. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. You arrive at a new company and churn retention is not doing great. And for some reason, the CEO turns to Louis Grenier, Louis the Grenade Grenier. And says, hey, Louis, I really need you to drop some bombs now. I really need to crush churn for us. We have 90 days. We need to have some results. What are you going to do? I wouldn't, I wouldn't obsess over churn. I would obsess over 
what I just said. I, I would simplify stuff, remove as much as possible, which will allow me to talk to you about the next two parts. So once you've done, I would do what is basically what I said. I would interview customer, obsess over them, identify a congruent group of people who actually have this very painful pain that we are able to, to, to solve. And then I would engineer the radical differentiation. I would map out what everything is required in a category or is expecting in the category we picked. Yeah. At least I would everything. From, and then I, again, I don't mean features here. I, I, I mean everything. So in marketing podcasts, if you pick that as a category, you would list down the fact that you have annoying ads at the start, in the middle, at the end. You'll have the guest that doesn't never that doesn't really. You'd have they cover multiple topics instead of one. You can you can you can write down everything. And then you must challenge and think: What can I remove or reduce? What can I do to really shed light on the negative, on the positive? Because this is what happens when you shed light on the positive, people will rationalize the negatives. That's super important to understand. When you remove stuff, people will understand why and because you only focus on a few things. Hotjar did that very well, not in terms of features, because we had a few, but they, they obsess over removing the complexity. And so it became, and it's still known to be the easiest to use because they really obsess over that. And so you can think of any example, like Red Bull, one product for years and years and years. And, and so that's what it takes. The verb here is removing. You must look at the congruence between the market that we have. How do we actually give them the best thing for their pain? How do we remove the cliches? How do we do things in a streamlined way that will become and so that we are known as the only that does that. And so it takes, again, experience to do. It takes guts to do. But think about think about the companies and the people that you that you love that are very that you think are different and think about what they are not doing instead of what they are doing. Think about the stuff that they removed and the stuff they are not doing. And you will likely find the fact that they are never on that many channels, that they are not focusing on that many customers. You look at the product, it's about removing more than adding. And then, yeah, you can add sprinkles of stuff so that you can help people solve their pain better. You can take ideas from other industries. If you're in B2B tech and SaaS, don't just stay in that industry. Think about any type of industries, any stuff that you like, and try to like add a few stuff that contribute to the overall story. And once you have that, the last, step, the last step I would do is I would do a jolt. I would make sure that this market know who we are by sharing a gift. And by a gift, I don't mean a stupid lead magnet or a newsletter. By a gift, something generous that people can either use to alleviate their boredom or to uh, tell a story to someone else or hire, uh, have a higher status or do something they couldn't do before. And so in that definition, it could be anything. It could be a TV ad with a good story. It could be like a guide if you want to. It could be a podcast interviewing people and whatnot. But the idea of the gift is way beyond just an inbound marketing tactic. It's really about being generous and showing up, giving stuff for free before you expect anything in return. And you likely, if you do that through the experience, you likely attract the right people, make them super happy, and they are way likely uh, to stick uh, around after that. And that's the core thing. It ties back to results. There's plenty of studies done that show that differentiated brands are able to, to keep their customers for longer and are able to pay to make them pay a premium for it. And, but again, intuitively, we know that. So that's what I would do. I would just follow the, the blueprint I, I gave you. And I, I, I wish we had way more time to, to go through it. But that's the way podcast interview goes. Yeah. Uh, that's what I would do. So I wasn't really paying attention. Do you mind going back a few minutes and saying what you said? 
Yeah, sure. No. So step one is to change uh, your mindset. So next question. Uh, that was fantastic. I think definitely out of all the answers I've had so far on the show for that, it was generally, it starts with the first step and it just elaborates on the first step, but it's nice that you followed through with like what to do after that, what to do after understanding like the customers, the pain points, the problems. And I, I love the point as well of just removing things. I think more often than not, our immediate reaction is to go to what's missing, what should we add, when more often than not, like just removing complexity, simplifying things is the answer. But as humans, I think like we immediately, the initial response is, okay, what's missing? What should we be adding? Yes. But maybe having those additional features that are uh, like prompting additional requests are the cause of conflict to begin with, and just pulling them out would save you a lot of time and energy. So two things here, just briefly. Yeah. Uh, first, absolutely, Interrupt and we are again. taught in school to do this. We are taught in school to be to increase our grades everywhere. We are taught in school to add and to be to be good at everything. That's the wrong mindset if you want to radically differentiate. And the second thing is, it's not about features only. Again, to repeat, that's super important. When I say remove, it's not removing features only. It's about thinking of the entire experience from start to finish, where you are, where you spend your time, and whatnot. Daft Punk is very well known to do exactly that thing, which is not appearing in public at all, building scarcity this way, which is a generous thing, by the way. By not showing up, you allow people to tell you know, stories about it. You basically alleviate their boredom because when you show up, you're just going to blow up. They are not showing their faces. They tried with bin bags before going to helmets and they've stopped doing, you know, they've they really focused on a few handful albums instead of being on Instagram every day and whatnot. So if you look at everything out there, you'll see the principle being everywhere. It's, it's just a convention, like a common thing that you see from differentiated artists or creators or companies. When are you getting them on the show? Sounds like you need to interview them whenever <laughs> next talk it is. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Yeah. Cool. Last question then. What's one thing today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started uh, in your career? If I had to pick one is that it's not about adding shit and, 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 and uh, making your stuff cumbersome. It's really about having the discipline and the confidence to, to create a few things, but do them extremely well. Awesome. I think that's an amazing end to today's show. It's been a pleasure as usual. Louis, I actually missed working with you as well. So it's good to catch up and have a chat. I miss you too, man. Uh, I know I'm taking the piss as well today a bit to, with you, but it's always, uh, this was the relationship we had. And I really, really appreciate you joining the show today. I'm like really excited for the success you've had on this uh, first course. And uh, for all the listeners, like I would definitely, definitely recommend like checking him out on his next one if you can get in if there's space because he's definitely standing the fuck out by what he's doing. <laughs> He's creating a space uh, of his own and uh, I'm pretty sure that every course is going to be fully booked from here on out. So Louis, thanks so much for joining. I wish you best of luck now uh, going into 2021. Thanks, man. And likewise to you. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. 
Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.